Welcome to Poetry Spotlight, presented by the Ohio Poetry Association. I am your host, Jeremy Jusek, and with us today is Honey Bell Bay. Honey is a motivational poet, writer, educator, and community advocate. She is an Ohio Certified Prevention Specialist and the founder and director for the International Distinguished Gentleman of Spoken Word, a character-based performance troupe for adolescent males who perform on topics of disparities and social injustices. She has performed, directed, and choreographed spoken word performance internationally and has received numerous awards and accommodations for her service and activism, utilizing poetry as a tool to unite communities around issues in social justice and, and equity. She was appointed the Poet Laureate of Cuyahoga County in January 2020, the first poet in 16 years to hold the position. Honey, thank you so very much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you so very much for having me. I'm honored. Now, would you mind starting us off with a poem? Um, sure. Absolutely. I like that. Inya, you just jump right to it. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> <laughs> so I shall read something uh, very short. Maybe short. Depends on how much of it I ad-lib as I go, which is part of my gifting, I guess. A Black Girl's Footsteps. I've been sequestered in sequential brilliance. I've been formed in formations of crystallized melanin. I've cried rivers until I became them. Learned to carry the load, never drowned. It was sink or swim. See, I'm Audre Lorde's capacity to be, ever destined to be. I won't stop until I'm dripped empty of poetry. I'm at the beginning of this laureacy. And before you capture the chapter, you have to read this woman's whole story, the pain, the passion, the poetry, the glory. You know, you can't count me out when they have no idea what I'm really all about. And attempts to bury you are attempts to only bury a sprout. Never ask for a burnout, but in this I'm qualified to poetically work it out. See, I am that $1.50 queen. That's Mary McLeod Bethune's dream. And still when a black girl shows up, they minimize her scream. They question how she made it to the team and how she's Sarah Bartman like me, over-sexualized and sometimes even made a meme. And yet she carries the passion, the poetry, the process, the pain. And yet she carries what she was taught by Shirley Chisholm. Maya Angelou gave me this much rhyme to my rhythm, the poetry, the passion, the pain. Oh, I do see queen, but don't think I've never heard the other names. They add flavor to my existence. See, I'm Fannie Lou Hamer's resistance. I'm Muhammad Ali's non-enlistment of Black girls' footsteps. This Black girl's dreams chasing poetic destinies, nightmares, screams. I'm on the shoulders of excellence. I'm on the shoulders of greatness. Pressures awakening me, calling out these ancestral wounds, beckoning me to push for destiny. First stop, Mary McCall Bethune, $1.50. Scoot over, you better make room. I'm going to start a little university with five little black girls. And she's going to push Honey Bell Bay into the world. This is to every little queen still striving, still becoming. 
I'm beckoning for the real you to come forth. Center stage, the poetry, the power, the passion, the purpose, the pain. A black girl's footsteps, a black girl's dreams, a black girl's nightmares, her poetry, her screams. Oh, that's beautiful. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Don't please. Did you did you say you do you you improv like improvise poetry? Like how often? And what gives you that confidence? I could never do that. <laughs> Pain. Pain. So usually, to be honest, um, it is often in response to pain. So when there are um, no other words or there's no other paths or there's no reason to find rhythm and you can't find a laugh, you sit on this call, even on a Thursday night, and you'd find poetry in the places where you can't write. So like I just did right there, you just write it because it's, it's what gives you freedom. And it always has. So I, my mother probably thought, well, not probably. She thought I was, this is one weird little child. <laughs> so I would just sit and write poetry because that was the answer to everything for me. And it's what made sense. And it's the only thing outside of being a girl and being African-American that I didn't have to try to be. It was just easy. It's just what was innately me. That's why I know I was supposed to be a poet because I didn't have to try to be it. It was just the words came out that way, you know? Yeah. Okay. Um, so when, so so, how early do you do you remember the first time that you were touched mm -hmm. by poetry that you recognized it for the for what it was? And so I was touched by poetry my whole life. So I spoke that way. I spoke in rhythm and I spoke in rhyme. My mother thought I was animated and weird, very weird. She'd say, "This one here, Whew, what cabbage patch did we pull this one out of?" <laughs> um, but a teacher. A teacher, and I've kind of really told this a lot this year for some reason in working with little girls particularly, a teacher lit this fire with one book. Um, and basically, to make a long story short, I had run away from school and I promised I'm never going back to the school ever again in the middle of the day on the highway. So I'm, I'm not kind of running. I am literally running. And all the teacher had done at lunch period, she very gentle, teacher did nothing wrong. She came down to my eyes, eyesight, like I would do a young child now. And she said, honey, are there some things going on at home? Very kind teacher. And I said, no, why would you even ask me that? I was just so taken aback that my secrets were not as hidden as I thought. And she told me the reason why she thought some things were going on at home. And she said, are you sure? And she named them specifically. I noticed this, I see this, I'm aware of this. And I was so offended by it. I just said, mm, liar. No, I don't know why. Why would you even think it? My acting skills went went way too uh, crazy with that. Ran away from school. Finally, they pushed for me to come back. And when I came back, she had this book um, called Honey, I Love by Eloise Greenfield. If someone were to say, honey, what's your dream in this life? One of my dreams in this life is to be able to meet this author that changed my life. So if there's anyone listening who can make this happen, Honey would like to meet the author of Honey I Love, Eloise Greenfield, who's in her 90s um, before she leaves this world and tell her how her words impacted me. The name of the book, Honey I Love, has a beautiful black little girl on the cover. 
and the words are about all these things she loved. I love to play, I love to swing, I love the feel of the sun. And the teacher was reading these words to me. And I'm just sitting there, I'm mesmerized. You have this book written in poetry with a black girl named Honey in it. And the last lines of the book, and honey, I love me too. And honey, so the words may be, and this day you can get through, and honey, I love, honey, I love me too. And the teacher just held my face as she said that my life changed. My life, my life changed. I was like, oh, I'll be in school tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, I'll be in school tomorrow. That's yeah. So changed awesome. my life. One little children's book that I read now in workshops. I use it with women. I use it in trauma recovery. I use it with little girls about self-esteem. That one little picture book of poetry is the reason why I'm poet laureate today. Period. Nothing else. That's it. Yeah. I, I mean, would you do you think you'd you would have ever found a relationship with poetry with that without that book? Yes, because it's my destiny. And so when you're when it's something is your destiny, there are many paths to destiny. So destiny would have found me, but that's the one that came down my street and I answered it. I knew it immediately. When she read it, it linked to everything in me that I had was writing. Little children's poems then, I was already writing it. I just didn't connect to the power of it until that book showed me the power. Sure. I was just writing it. Um, and I've never even said it that way. I wrote it. I wrote for the freedom. The book showed me the power. Wow. If that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so when you, when you're writing, are you consciously, you know, going after crafting techniques and trying to set it up carefully, or are you tapping into that? Well, that re- those power reserves and letting the power out. Is it a com- Is it a combination of both? I don't want to be like too black and white on this because it's, you know. So I'm going to be honest with you, um, brutally honest. No, I'm not that smart. I- I'm going to be honest. I am creative. So when I hear people talk about technique and crafting, I respect it and I teach it to my students because they should know it. I don't want my distinguished gentleman of spoken word to ever be in a setting and people ask them about a sonnet or a limerick or a haku or any of that. And they're poets who can't know it. I don't write that way um, with intentionality. I journal. I journal poetically and end usually at that result by mistake because something has either um, lit passion under me or I'm so infuriated by something that the poetry won't rest and it won't allow me to rest. It'll knock at my eyelids at two o'clock in the morning until I get it out. And usually when I get it out in these big ridiculous books that people buy me (laughs) uh, of this papyrus paper and this, you know, beautiful style, but I do write on it. And when I fill these up, usually I'm pretty free afterwards. So poetry is always my entire life. I have every journal um, I've ever had since childhood. So the first poem written in crayon, I have it. To this day, I've always had them. So I probably have 50 of these. Um, so poetry, again, nothing I'm trying to be. It's just who I am. I couldn't I couldn't help being a poet if I tried to. Okay. It's who I am, yeah. Well, my follow-up question, and, I, and I'm, I probably already know the answer to this, which is, you know, is, is it like a, a, a mindset that you get into or are you just always feeling it? Like, you know, are you just like, you know, working with recipes over the stove and just, kind of rattling the ingredients off until it becomes 
like a, a rhythm or it, it, do you get into a moment where you say, okay, the, the, the call, this is, this is a moment that calls for poetry. Or this is a moment that I'm, that I'm feeling poetry and you, you grab the book and you write. Um, I'm always feeling poetic. Always. I'm always feeling poetic, but there are times, especially when I'm commissioned to do a piece that I can't always tap into that. That's harder for sure. If I'm commissioned to, especially if I'm commissioned to do something that I'm not connected to, I have to let it sit and simmer um, for a while until I, until the passion comes. And when it comes, I usually know the poem will be done in one setting. I am here in Cleveland, there's a bridge, the Sideway Bridge, and I was commissioned to do a piece by art, the Cleveland Museum of Art, about this bridge and the Huff riots that burnt this bridge now that was supposed to be about a symbol of hope and unity. And racism took this bridge and turned it into something else. So I am, I'm reminded of pieces like that where I have to take and sit with the topic for a while. And then yes, it does take a intentionality and in setting the setting and um, having those zones. So when you see people and they have to get the tea and sit in offices like yours and that I see behind you and uh, you know have the whole atmosphere, that is a part of it. It really is. For me, I often don't have that, that opportunity. So I am more like, people in this old movie and some listeners may know this movie the five heartbeats and in this movie uh they're trying to write a song and they're going all over the house and he ends up writing the song on paper bags on every the wall I'm more of that type of writer as the inspiration comes I honor it so I don't push the inspiration that's why there's an ink pen everywhere in my life in my car in every room of my house, there's a journal everywhere because you never know when the inspiration is going to come. And so I honor it then. Um, but I also appreciate academia and those who have respected the process and those who uh, respect technique. I appreciate that even if that's not my necessary form, there has to be a balance between both. And I try to teach my students that to go on inspiration, to go on passion, but also to allow that inspiration and that passion to be fueled by education. Okay. Does that answer, does that answer your question? Oh, it certainly does. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now, I, I don't want to belabor this point too much, but I do have one last follow-up question. Do when you are, are like listening to music or you're, 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 involved in some other artistic endeavor does th does all creativity feel the same I'm assuming yeah. it doesn't because you fear you are a poet so like I imagine that the poetry is is more raw and real for you but does creativity all have different flavors or how, how does that work for you it has different flavors but it all um it all provides nourishment. I mean, in, in looking at how you stated it, I think of that Thanksgiving plate. And some people at Thanksgiving, 
I am one of those who I do not want my food to touch. <laughs> I'm one of those. So the people who like to mix the gravy and all that in it, uh-uh. Give me the little kitty dish where there's one little thing here and one little thing here. No, don't give me, I won't eat a plate that is overloaded and there's 52 different things running into, oh, I can't do it. Um, I can't process it. It's just, <laughs> I'll just look at the plate and try to be, uh, ginger and grateful to whoever fixed it and you know move the fork with the food but i'm not eating that in that regard everything on that plate is still good it's still good it just has a different purpose for me so lately in this season of my life i paint more than i write it just happens that way happens that way but then i'll typically go back and honor the painting with a poem so i gift the painting so I even tell the canvas, you know, you're my second love, but I'm going to give you a gift. And I give the gift of poetry. I'll listen to Nina Simone. Literally, I listen to vinyl. So I want those weirds. I have a huge vinyl collection. I put the vinyl on at the same time. So if I have Miles Davis playing at the same time that I, that means I have entered what I don't get to have very often, intentional rest. So that means I am intentionally in the mood for rest and creativity can thrive in that. In my life, typically, I don't have time for that. My life is in constant uh, movement and service to humanity. So I have to take the poem as it comes to me on the go. And the poem has, it respects my busy life. It's like dating someone and they know that they are not um, your first love. Service is the first love and the poetry has accepted that. So it loves me so much that it'll come to me on the go. Um, as I date this other person, basically, and this other person is service. <laughs> if that makes any sense to you, it does. Yeah. Okay. Okay. You know, and, and you mentioned service because I, and I don't, I do not say this lightly because we've we've talked to you. You might be one of the most service-minded people that I've interviewed so far. Like I, I, I am impressed and enthralled by your track record and. So I, I wanted to to ask you about that. Um, yes. With, with regards to the outreach, how does what is the symbiotic relationship between that that service and you, and, and how does poetry fit into that? And and in in what made you lean into those commitments? Um, I think you know you you hear the words of Dr. King services the rent we pay for the space we take up on earth well I believe that and I don't believe it in terms of I'm trying to be that no I believe that in the poem I read when we started and I say intentionally I'm a dollar and 50 cents queen that's my value that's all I am I'm worth one dollar and 50 cents someone listening without the knowledge would say whoa that's some low self-esteem no not really Mary McLeod Bethune when she started Bethune Cookman University all she had was $1.50. And she says, I'm going to start this school for Black girls. There were no graduates in my family before that. I am a graduate now as a product of her school because of her $1.50. She took that and was determined to serve, to serve youth, to serve community, to serve art, to serve passion. And so I walk in those same footsteps and I don't try to walk in it. It is just what wakes me up, what keeps me up. And then when I can't heal from all that I see, um, the passion caused me to write it. 
and I have to write it to be free as I each day get up and still try to serve community. So if this office of laureacy, as I call it, joke with my friends, if it was about me, then I made the position way too small. Way, way, way too small. Is it? If it's not about, let me use this platform to see, okay, kids are in quarantine. Honey, how can you have virtual academies where kids get together and paint where ki virtually? Kids get together and write poetry and analyze poetry and make crafts. If the office isn't about that, what is it about then? How, what a, use, a useless way to spend life and time, if not to service to humanity and service to the poetry too, even though the service comes first and the poetry lets me date this other person. And you know, the poetry's okay. Poetry's like, well, it's okay. When you're done with this, I'll still be here. It's okay. I'm your number one. So they, they fight sometimes. And so I have no choice but to kind of marry them so that they'd be okay with the amount that I give out to people. Sure, sure. And that's not convoluted. That is the real deal of my life. <laughs> it just is, you know? Well, even as you're walking through your office, I can see just like shelves stacked with food and, and all sorts of yeah. related materials. Um, you know, did you know this is what you wanted to do when you were growing up? Has it been ingrained? Like, like I guess, I mean, I, that's that's a tough question because a lot of a lot of kids when you ask a seven year old what they want to be, they usually say, "I want to be a doctor or a fireman or something." But, um, I guess does the does this feel like an inevitability that's always just been there? The stage was always mine for sure. I've, uh, I did the graduation speech in middle school and at Playhouse Square, 400 high school graduates in high school. And I've done TED Talks and those pieces, that was inevitable to put that. I thought that that meant something like I'd be a newscaster. I To put that in terms of service to people, no, you could not have paid me to think that. But my homeless days should have said, when I was standing outside of Kroger in Atlanta begging for a pack of Roman noodles, my life would now be making sure I have enough, as you see in my office, to stock the shelves of 600 families, um, is what I'm at now, for the winter months, to make sure there's no need. It would, if you match trauma to experience and time, they match. The trauma of my life match what I do now, because I'm making sure, hopefully, Someone doesn't live the same road as I. So they, they match perfectly. I just didn't know. You know, does that make sense? Every yeah. single thing that I do in my life now is answered by something. It is the answer to something I experienced in childhood. So if I'm there for young people, it's because I know the value of having a caring adult, of not having a caring adult in your life in seasons. So now I make sure that I am that person and I make sure that I keep my word with it. So if I say it, it is so. If I give scholarships, and I do every single year, it is because I know what it's like not to have those care packages and to be alone in college and to feel alone in the world. And I know how long it takes to recover from those seasons of brokenness. And um, I know what it's like to have to write through that pain. And so it is my duty to make sure other young people and other women and other families you can write through and you can heal because I've been through that type of hell and uh, I'm trying to help somebody else's road not be as bumpy. Mm. You, you've spoken in interviews and 
in the past about poetry as a healing force. Um, how, how does, how does that work? I, I, either for you, and if you, you know, you don't want to comment on that directly for the people that you mentor, you know, the, the students and, and the other people that you reach in your outreach. Well, I think it is about not being ashamed of your bruises and your brokenness. My campaign um, under the Poet Laureacy immediately is called Poet, P-O-E-T. I knew it immediately. That would be the name, Poet, Power Over Emotional Trauma. I knew immediately I wanted to be able to teach people to not be broken by the things that attempted to break you. So what does that mean? If I stand in front of the young man who's like, forget that, Miss Honey, I only hear him because look, I ain't never met my father. Look, uh, I'm mad at him. And I'm like, guess what? Miss Honey has never met her father either. I've never met any member of his family and I don't take it out on the world. And sir, you're not going to take it out on the world either. So I have already removed any bridge in front of us. Why? I've acknowledged your trauma and I know it hurts. I know it. Oh, man, it hurts. Whatever it is. It could be divorce. It could be change of jobs. It could be the kid who died of cancer. It could be your own survival of cancer, whatever it is. How do you write through that piece and have freedom? And I believe that's what I was really put here on earth to teach people how to do. How do you take, number one, I had the greatest experience of it because I went through the trauma myself. So I am well-trained in this. I am trained. Life has trained me. And so I did the CD Poet Breaking and I give that out. Um, I don't sell it. I give it out to people to have that conversation. It's everything on there from sexual assault to depression to you name it. It's all in there, but it's about trauma and how you recover from that. So how does that work? It works by you be doing, doing what I'm doing now, bold enough to tell your story. Like I am not ashamed by any scar that I bear. And people who paint a picture of me that's different or you paint a pit, oh, honey, I thought that you had it all together. I don't know what made you think that. I would be the first person to tell you. I do not, but I will tell you that is a trifold piece happening with me. I acknowledge the trauma as I heal from the trauma, as I help people heal from theirs. All three are happening in my life at the same time. And I don't give power to um, crutches. And I don't allow young people to have crutches either. The stuff that happened to you, you can't walk on that forever. No, you have to live life. And it was meant to be beautiful and wonderful and powerful despite your trauma. Yeah. And, and, and how, do, how do students respond when you're working with them? Um, it's painful. So they learn how to sometimes be honest and open to their tears for the first time. Because now you have this lady in front of you that's saying, that's saying um, some of the crap that happened to you, most of it was not fair. But it is okay to cry. It is. I give you permission. You can water the pages. You can water the space. Or you might not want to cry. You might not know how to. You might be so mad that you want this lady to get out your face. Me. You want me to move right now. So tell the paper that. You can trust the paper. The paper can hold your tears and your words. Let's try it. And so even if your first words is, I hate this paper and this lady. That's good enough. I take it. <laughs> Let's start here. I can deal with it. We won't end there like we want in there so trust yourself through the process and so I work people through this I'm getting ready to work a group of women through a um, through a retreat that I'm gifting them at a golf club a country club so they get to stay for three days and write poetry with me 
all expense paid. I have someone coming to do their pedicures and uh, massage, and they're going to be loved on through their trauma. And the only thing they're expected to do is to try to write. Do I want their poetry at the end? Do I want to publish it? I don't need it. I want you to be free. You feel the power of it. And uh, I'm gifting this to women. Why? Because life has gifted me with enough for me to try to share. And that's that's all I, I want to do. It's all I'm trying to do. It's incredible. Thank you. That I mean, that's that's awesome. Um, <laughs> uh, so so what what is your relationship with publication? Do you see that as a restrictive body? Because you know, writing has institutions that a lot of people feel a lot of need to work toward and. You know, like in, in workshops, when I'm running workshops, uh, you know, a lot of people are like, well, can I get this published? And my first question is usually like, ah, what do you want to do with this poem? What's, what's this poem in for you? And I've seen it as, as almost oppressive sometimes because people are writing toward it and they're not letting themselves just write. And so I'm wondering what you see when, when you're working with people. What a great question. What a great question that I'm, I'm, um, I'm asked, but positioned differently in the question often. People are often with me, honey, you should have published more. You should have published by now. You only had the one book you self-published in college. What are you doing? Publish, publish, publish. So I feel their need and their pressure with that. Um, But the first step in the stage has to be the freedom of the writing without a what happens to it next. It has to be, I have to write it to be free. Second phase of it is I write this as a gift to community often, but first I have to write it for the freedom of me. The third phase, yes, you you should publish. And the reason why, even with those, I don't want you to get married into the restrictions first. There's only one reason for me why publication is so important, because once you write and you publish, it is your immortality. I will never die, ever. It is impossible for me to die. Audre Lorde will never die. The people who put your, cared enough about your craft to publish it means that you cared enough for it to be passed down. There was something so powerful in your words. You wanted the next generation to read it. So I'm at a phase in my life where yes, publication, the need for it, it does ring in my ears because all of our days are marked. We all have a beginning, an end and a dash. You cheat the dash, you cheat it when you publish. And I've never worded it ever before your question. I've never worded it. I cheat the dash when I leave my words for the next generation. And so I publish for that reason, so that the next generation can have what you wanted to say when your days are done in this earthly form. So yeah, you have to publish. Okay, that's that's very interesting. (laughs) To be immortal, you reach immortality by publishing. You never will never die. (laughs) (laughs) So you were, you were the first, you were the first poet in 16 years. Cuyahoga County's uh, laureate office was reinstated. And so, so how did that happen? You know, did you, did someone reach out to you? What made Cuyahoga County reinstate the position? And how, how did you fall into that? So the position was never really formalized, even the, the first one. Okay. It was there, but not, there wasn't a big swearing in. There wasn't a, it was just kind of a, hey, here's a poet laureate kind of situation. It wasn't um, with the life and breath that I had witnessed other cities. 
And so I started with, I'm going to be very candid here, started with the mayor here and said, hey, I want to start this uh, poet laureate piece for the city of Cleveland. And I'm not saying I want to be the poet laureate. I'm saying I'm going to start this campaign and petition for the poet laureate piece for Cleveland. And every single council person that I work with agenda was, honey, that sounds great. Write some poetry for me. Okay, did that. Perform for me. Okay, did that. Bring your performing poets to perform for me. Did that. Okay, honey, I'm gonna swear you in. You're the poet laureate of my ward. You're the poet laureate of my street. So all they were doing was running me around and it was horrible. And in my attempt and desire to serve, I it was not the dream, the vision of what I wanted. When you talk about walking in the shoes with the spirit of Maya Angelou on you, that was not it at all. And I deserved something more, something different, and so did the city. And so finally, because the mayor did not see the passion of art poetically in that same way, and probably never would have, it was tiring. And I said, okay, well, the city definitely is encompassed by a county. Let me see what the county thinks about this. <laughs> and I went to, <laughs> basically, and I went to the county and the county said, I don't know what in the world a poet laureate is. Literally, I don't know what in the world a poet laureate does. What do they do? What are you asking us? I said, I don't want any money from you. I'm going to bring money. If it's money, I'll bring money to you. I write the grants myself. I don't need any, any help in that category. But I want you to acknowledge that poetry exists in this city. So that means children looks up, look up to this laureacy and they appreciate art in a different way because I'm going to encompass all of it. The visual art, I keep painting, pointing to this painting that I just got a couple of weeks ago behind me. Um, music, all of it. I'm going to bring all of it to schools, to, you know, uh, community events differently. And they said, okay, well, even though we don't know, let's do some research. And they researched and find, okay, well, somebody was, we were talking about this 16 years ago. That's how that piece came up. And the vote, when they put it to county council, came back unanimous. And they said, absolutely. And then the plain dealer put it on the front page and it was off and running. And then the National Academy of uh, Poets called. It was just like, is this a dream? And so I told someone, and I mean this, because of something I wanted so much, anything else that really, and this is not thinking low in life at all. But anything else that happens in life is pretty much the gravy. I've, I've won. I've won because this is something I wanted with intent. And someone would ask, why did you want it that bad? I just wanted it. I knew this little girl's voice um, going back to that teacher who's been down talking to me and telling all the truth of my life that was telling on myself. I knew it deserved a platform bigger because my intent was to pull up other hurting women with me. So it was never about me and it deserved to have an official platform. That was my entire intent. And so to see that as success in my life, yeah, that's what I, I want written or talked about. No matter what I do nationally, even from here, I want this moment in time to be talked about. Okay. And, and since, since that office has been established, what have you, what have you managed to do with it? And are you, are you happy with the progress that you've made and the, the things that you've accomplished? Well, I was sworn in as Poet Laureate in 2020, <laughs> <laughs> January 31st, 2020. 
and as we know, an epidemic of 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 pandemic proportions <laughs> would be on its way. <laughs> and yeah. that is exactly what happened. So my dreams of being at schools across the county in every county and setting junior poet laureates and all of my dreams came crashing to a serious halt uh, because of that. I am happy that I was passionate and true to the poet enough to change what could have been a performance year. Thank, thank God, thank God for the pandemic because if not for that, I would have gone on tour in Paris I would have reignited all of the stops that the distinguished gentleman took. I would have, the office of the poet laureate probably would have been about me because I would have had the freedom to travel everywhere. I didn't have that freedom. So it became about people. I turned poetry into produce, giving out to hundreds of families. I turned it into care packages by the thousands to people in the early days of COVID. I just knew mobilize quickly before when the schools were shut down, I mobilized faster than the school. And my lead school, the principal, he was telling me, honey, whatever you want to do, just tell me. I said, we got to get these kids into something. They cannot, just knowing uh, the research about um, summer learning loss, they can't be out of school this long. So it just became, I am very happy that I mobilized that fast and was able, I had no class during the initial days of COVID where there weren't 45 kids on the Zoom. 45 virtual cooking classes, virtual, it was literal. I've, I've never been this tired in my life. I am tired. And there is a serious vacation on the horizon coming. Um, but it just became about service and not about me. So I'm glad I was able to write some in that. I was able to have virtual workshops called Poet about trauma for women. And they were um, at capacity all of them at capacity. And the women wrote and submitted their poetry. Um, and we took out billboards all over the city and encouraged the women to turn in their poets. So imagine seeing a billboard that just says poet, you will live through your trauma, send in your story. And the women flooded the website with their poetry. Now I'll take that poetry and publish it in not many days. So I am, I am yes, I will say yes. I am excited that I've had no sleep in the past year <laughs> and a half yeah no sleep yeah i can i can see that and, and it's interesting because that, that's probably the first time i've ever heard anyone say thank god for the pandemic <laughs> right you know what i mean um because it, it happened so and in in some cases it is still it's happening you're still losing lives but what are the lessons anything that happens in my life i want to have the lessons behind there were key significant moments that were so painful in life that I wrote through them or I think it would have meant my death. When Hurricane Katrina hit and people, the treatment of people in the Superdome, I couldn't sleep until I wrote a whole play in a night, wrote a whole play, whole poetic play in one night. Um, that's the way I healed and I survived through it. 9-11, how do you survive something so catastrophic and unimaginable? I had to write that to get that out. So anything key that happens like that is either right or die because it takes over your soul, your spirit like that. Is that for me, how connected I am with trauma, with pain, with people. Um, poetry becomes my only freedom from that. Okay. And, and what advice would you have for someone who's saying, hey, I have trauma. 
how do I connect with it through poetry? Like for someone, if, if, if someone comes to you and says, you know, I don't, I don't feel it on my bones quite the same way. How would you suggest to them that they marry those two? So sometimes when you don't feel it that way for you, um, lean and glean on the words of someone who left the gift for you. When I look at the words of Paul Lawrence Dunbar, who wrote my favorite poem, Sympathy, when I lean on that, it gives me the freedom to write when I don't want to write. So sometimes maybe it's not your words. Maybe it's another poet's words. That's my advice. When you can't find it within yourself, find their healing words and let it heal you. When he writes words like, I know what the cage bird feels. You know what the cage bird feels like me? Alas, when the sun is bright on the upland slopes and the first bird sings and the first bud opes and his faint perfume on his chalice steel. Oh, I know what the caged bird feels. You've given me permission to say, oh, I've been a caged bird too. So when you can't connect with the writing yourself and you can't write it yourself, trust me, someone in history has left you the gift of their own experience right there. Someone has. So you might have to research to find someone else's words. You might have to write to their words even. So if you don't have it yourself, Sometimes you have to write to somebody else's to find that freedom and it's there. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. That makes sense. Um, it, when you sent out the care package packages, cause I I'm interested in, in how you worked around COVID, you know, mm-hmm. I, a lot of online work, you know, you, you, you set up websites and, and, you know, I'm sure you did a zillion zoom meetings. Um, those care packages, what, what were, what were in them? And, and, and beyond that, what are some of the ways that you skirted the pandemic and its restrictions? You know, it's funny. I was just um, driving and thinking, honey, you know, you are so blessed that you didn't get COVID. And I don't mean that loosely. I mean that seriously, that I didn't have a sniffle, a sneeze, a, anything through those early days. I, when I think of that, and nor did anyone in my household, um, I'm really grateful because the distinguished gentleman my own personal youth group, I had to put their care packages at the end of the driveways. And some of the most, if you go on my Facebook page and look back, they're there. The most painful videos were these little people running down driveways and Miss Honey putting that hand, no, 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 up. And they're like, I can't hug you. I can hug you. And me saying, no, 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 you can't hug me. When in those early, early days of COVID and the confusion still of them processing, I can't hug her. I said, take your bag and I'll see you on Zoom. In the bag for the artist student, canvas, so much canvas. I I mean, Michael's, this canvas all around me. We, they really, they got a, a whole lot of money out of me during the pandemic. Canvas in each bag, paint, paint brushes, um, all of the sanitizing, Clorox wipes, tons of masks by the shoot loads. All of those number one pieces, but then games to keep the kids, uh, you know, engaged, not just married to your cell phone all day. Journals in every bag. I see those journals, ink pens in every bag. I wanted you to write through your process. Every bag that went out, the initial kits had a journal in it. Every single one from the office of the Poet Laureate with ink pens, tons of cookies, snacks. I had a dentist donate um, electric toothbrushes. So all of those first kids got all of that. And then all the typical PPE stuff was in 
all the bags that went out. Um, so I think being safe for one, me just putting at the end of the driveways, I never went on porches um, and I never hugged or shook hands as painful as that was for kids to understand. It just was what it was. And I tried to connect as much as I could through the Zoom platform um, and connect with them, even the individual Zooms for kids who needed that. And I knew that, which is why I tell you, this is as tired as I've ever been. So it was literally an around the clock piece uh, in that virtual world for me. It was, it was a lot, a labor of love for sure. And all of those virtual cooking classes that I started uh, I had to drop off food once a week to every kid's driveway for them to prepare the meals that I was cooking. So it was, it was insanity. It was just poetic insanity. <laughs> it was, it was craziness. Yeah. just total nuts. For my last question, I want to ask about the distinguished gentleman, because this has been a program that you've had going for a very long time and you're uh, it's, it's a core part of, you know, your repertoire and, and, so I, I, just if you wouldn't mind speaking to it, how you got involved and, and how that's evolved over time. Yeah, the Distinguished Gentleman is a program I started in my head in college for um, adolescent young men to have a place to express themselves poetically. This performing performance troupe I've now had for 20 years. We've traveled to Paris. I've taken some to Ghana with me to conferences all over the country, gentlemen from high-risk environments coming together under the ceiling of poetry and writing together, whatever that is, and truly understanding its power. When you see them stand together in full tuxedo and I call out, distinguished, and they yell back, marked by eminence or excellence, gentlemen, <laughs> a man of good family, a well-bred man, they have bought into something bigger than them. So I use poetry as to sneak the medicine in the spoon to reach a whole generation. If you had paid me a billion dollars, I wouldn't have believed my life would be tying bow ties on young men. I would, to be honest with you, I'm also in my gratitude for my time that the pandemic has offered. It, it, it took me away from them meaning the performance so was so nonstop, three and four performances in a weekend. It was grueling and it made me serve community different. And they gave me permission to serve community differently. And it was okay. I just now I'm getting ready to start my, I don't know, 15th cohort of them um, and restart a whole new group. Now that the pandemic has, uh, it's not slowed but it's taken a different form. I'll start, I have not started them back in the performance since, mm -hmm. since, since COVID. So we've painted a lot. We've grown socially, emotionally, and that's important too. Sometimes when you are a performing, a performing poet, you can get on that grind uh, to the point that it's not well. And it was, it was a heavy performance season. It slowed us down. Whew. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, would you like to read a poem before we wrap up here? Um, sure, I certainly can. And thank you so much for having me. Oh, the pleasure is all mine. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on. I will read a portion of this piece. I'm writing a poem about all of the female writers who've impacted my life in some way. 
So this one is simply entitled Lord. If I didn't define myself for myself, I'd be crunched into other people's fantasies for me and eaten alive. Audre Lorde was uniquely defined in her stands to serve and protect community, education, love, and feminism. She was warrior poet on the battlefield of racism, sexism, classism, homophobia, and capitalism. She defined her own Black and Caribbean poetic dialect. And when she felt undefined, unheard, and misunderstood, she traveled up and down the language of poetry, defined herself openly, responded with anger to racism globally and sexism vocally and published 11 volumes like the Black Unicorn, never watering down the fierce potency of poetry or in the fine works of prose or the 12 essays of feminism beautifully exposed. She confronted life, lesbianism, feminism, racism. She confronted death, cancer, mastectomy, classism, and she never backed down from any of it Timeless as the night sky, revolutionary poet never dies. I have a duty to speak truth, and as I see it, to solve it. Just my triumphs, not just the things that felt good, but the pain, the intense, often unmitigating pain, power her poem could be written today by a different name, telling the story of a police shooting of a 10-year-old Black child when the officer was acquitted, poetry took fire and rage went wild. She wrote her pain, warrior poet, pen as a sword, racism slain, words of freedom pumping through her veins from Columbia University to the world knows her name. Librarian, activist, poet, essayist, creating freedom in her serenity. Your fight creates pages for generations to live in your stances of free identity. If I didn't define myself for myself, I'd be crunched into other people's fantasies for me and I would be eaten alive, Lord. That's so awesome. <laughs> thank you for reading. It's, it, it, and thank you for coming on. It's such a pleasure. Thank you. The pleasure's been mine. Uh, well, well, this has been Poetry Spotlight, a production of the Ohio Poetry Association. Please follow the OPA on Twitter at Ohio Poetry and on Facebook at facebook.com slash Ohio Poetry. A transcript of this episode can be found on the OPA blog. Visit ohiopoetryassociation.org for more information. And honey, again, third time's a charm. Thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you so very much. Mm-hmm.